Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what is going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. Welcome to the latest episode of the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Gray. And yes, it has been a year since we have recorded or published anything that is unique. We're going to be doing a new format uh, everything's going to be new. Uh, with that being said, uh, I'd like to welcome uh, my co-host, uh, Caroline Stevens. Hi, Caroline. Hey, everybody. And with us today also would be uh, our guest, the one and only Michael Basil. Well, technically, there are nine of us in this in the country, but I thank you for that, and I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time to be here. And uh, just out of a uh, out the gate, quick question on that. You say there's there's nine Michael Basils. How many of those are disinformation accounts, sock puppets? Oh, I didn't include those. Uh, there's about 30 of us uh, out there. there. There are nine legit, and there's probably some relationship to all of them. But, you know, having a unique name, kind of it's kind of difficult when you're trying to hide from the internet. But uh, definitely lots of disinformation out there, right? I had a, a person try to do a, uh, you know, a consensual doxing on me and he thought he had found me and it was one of the disinformation campaigns. So at least that's going well. Absolutely. And that's before we came on the air. That's that's one of the things that I've been doing a lot of research on. It's it's pretty amazing. Definitely worth uh, taking the time to look at. We're not here to talk about that book. So word on the street is the sixth edition of open source intelligence techniques is available for sale right now. Uh, can you confirm or deny that? I can confirm. Uh, it uh, came out this week. It's been it's been in the works for quite some time. Uh, I had kept it quiet for a while just because we were <clears throat> kind of dealing with some legal issues on it. But everything's good now. It finally got cleared. It's out in the public. And uh, I hear that people are getting theirs as we speak. I, for one, have one on a truck somewhere between Amazon and here. So I'm excited for some nice light reading. Going back to the the first edition, what prompted you to write the book in the first place? I wrote it in 2011. I was still with the government. I was doing, uh, at the time I was with the FBI Cybercrimes Task Force, and I was assisting with uh, child sexual exploitation type cases, finding bad guys that were basically manufacturing and distributing child pornography. And at the time, it, it was all about OSINT, but no one really was referring to it as OSINT at that time. And basically, my job was to take bad guy on you know whatever news group that he's posting an image on and research him online to find out who he really is, which was really successful back then because a lot of these people weren't really concerned with hiding themselves too much. They thought, as long as they had a screen name on some, you know, alt dot binaries dot whatever that they could kind of hide behind that. So, um, I, you know, I started writing that book with the idea of not even selling it. It was just a matter of I was going to make this book, share it with my coworkers in the office and have it be a guide so that when they when they found a username on whatever forum where do we go and, and look for that stuff up? So th that's what it started out as. It really was never intended to be something that would be on Amazon or in stores. It was just kind of a uh, an in-house type thing. The first edition, that that's really kind of what it stayed at. And then uh, the second edition got a little bit of traction and, and here we are today with the sixth. Absolutely. And I, I will say that anytime someone comes to me and says, hey, I want to learn OSINT, where do I go? My first response is, have you read Michael Basil's book? To, to sing the praises of your course, even I won the DerbyCon SECTF and I operated off of the advice of one of the previous winners of DEFCON's SECTF, Chris Silvers. Uh, I know him from the our time in the DEFCON group in Atlanta, DC 404 together. And after he won, he did a presentation at DC 404. And the the number one question was, hey, what 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 tricks did you use to win? And he's like, I took Michael Basil's class. I heard that and I feel like I owe him books for life or something. Like I, I, I never quite completed the thank yous for that. So I probably need to contact him. I can set that up if you would like. 
<laughs> okay, let, let's do that off air. But uh, yeah, I did. I did hear about that, and I'm extremely grateful. I mean, every day that I someone contacts me and, and, and says, "Hey, you know, your book helped catch this bad guy, or help find this person, or help me do this," I, I'm extremely honored by that. Like that's that's really the motivation to keep writing these because I, I don't. I still do OSINT, but I don't do it the way I used to with the government anymore. So it, now it's just more of a, an addiction, I think. And it's something I feel like I, I just can't quit doing. So I probably need to seek help for that. It, it is rather addictive, especially, you know, I, I kind of categorize OSINT into um, three broad categories. And it's kind of like the business OSINT, the people OSINT, and then OSINT for threat intelligence, uh, which is OSINT-ish of sorts. Um, I looking back at whenever I was in the recon phase for the SCCTF, it's like every time I found something, I I was just ecstatic, and I think Caroline could probably attest to this because she was the uh, the person who would be like, "Hey, I found this. Uh, what do you think? Uh, is this worthwhile? Do you think this is legit?" It is rather addictive, especially when you start finding things, or or even further, um, when when you're called upon by someone to find someone that needs to be found, so to speak, um, for whatever reason that they need to be found. Well, I was completely blown away just by the sheer volumes of information that, that was collected and, and the way that it was organized. I mean, I, I can only imagine because that was just, I mean, it wasn't a brief engagement, but um, Michael, I'm sure some of the things that you've done, you know, that may take, you know, weeks, months, um, I'm not sure if you've done any that have taken years, but just the amount of information that you have to pour through has got to be just insane. Yeah. And that's definitely changed over the years. When I started doing OSINT back in, I don't know, 2001, 2002, um, you know, it wasn't overwhelming. We, we could handle what we found, you know, it, we were limited to MySpace and a couple of other social networks, maybe Friendster and an analysis on a target really didn't take that long and it was very manageable. And when I teach my classes today, one of the things I teach is that many years ago, I, I would always teach, find as much information as you can. And today what I teach is filter out as much information as you can, because finding the information today is not the hardest part. It, it's all over the place. You've got to be blind not to see it. It's the biggest problem I have is, all right, now that we have these pages and pages and pages of evidence, uh, no one wants to see all of this. How do I filter this down to something that is manageable? How do I filter this down to something that's applicable to my target? Because there's a lot of false positives out there. So yeah, today I, I often run into that issue where I cannot manage all of this data. It's too much. Not all of it's applicable. I need to, I need to start eliminating. And I think that you know, when you have an OSINT analyst that can properly eliminate and filter out the unwanted information, that might be just as valuable as the analyst who can go find the information. Do you see a lot more, a lot more tools and attempts at automation for OSINT uh, today than uh, when you started in 2001? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there was really no automated options when I started, but there also really wasn't a need for any. And you know, I look at automated options in, in two ways. I, I I look at the the person who makes the Python script that checks the ten places that you're going to check anyway, and, and I like that automation. I approve of that. I use it. I implement it. I teach it. Um, but there's also the automation, like the premium automations, what I call it, to where there's a lot of companies that are coming out and selling products that say, "Oh, here's your turnkey OSINT solution, and put in your bad guy's name or put in your." your geographical area and draw the box around wherever, and we're going to find all the stuff. And I don't approve of a lot of those because it creates this false sense of completion. Uh, I've talked to a lot of fusion centers and government agencies that they buy the premium product that says, we're going to find everything for you. They install it, they run it, and whatever they get, they assume that's everything. And what really is going on is they're missing so much good information. So I love the automation as far as those individual Python scripts that get released open source, we put a lot of them in, in, in our uh, virtual machine called Buscador. I think those are great because they're time savers and they allow us to maybe spend more time on filtering out the, the good results and the things we want. But when it comes to a lot of the premium stuff, um, you know, one, I'm 
I don't think they can ever find everything. No one will ever replace the OSINT analyst person. The robots can't come in and say, okay, we can do this from now on. I truly believe that there will always be that job for that, that human being and that that person can actually make sense of what they find. So I worry about some of the premium stuff and I'm seeing more and more of it, but I think we're also seeing a lot of it fail too. I mean, every since the whole Twitter started pulling out from their agreements with all these data collection companies, I won't name any of them, but I think everyone knows who they are. Um, we started seeing a lot of those companies kind of fall down because they were relying so heavily on this unlimited access from these social networks. And as soon as these social networks turn that access off, well, now they, they don't have anything to offer. So, you know, I, in the book, I don't talk a ton about automation with the exception of Python scripts that help because I believe it's up to us to to basically make sense of what we find. I, I couldn't agree more uh, personally. Um, I know there I don't want to say that the tool I'm about to mention is not valuable. I found some value in it, just not necessarily in the scope of OSINT that I've been able to achieve manually or using some of the the Python based solutions like my personal favorite honestly is recon ng i i don't get a whole a whole lot out of multigo to be honest a lot of the stuff that i could see in there uh i've already pulled elsewhere from you know like the have i been pwned type stuff uh i've already been able to achieve that in recon ng in fewer steps in my opinion yeah i dedicated an entire chapter to recon ng in the book because i think it's underused and you know, Maltigo gets a lot of the attention and, and I'm sure they have benefits. I've never been a huge Maltigo user. Um, I agree with you that I, I prefer getting it the manual way. I know they can automate it, but again, I don't really want that crutch. But Recon and G, once I was able to just sit down and learn the framework, I think it's amazing. And, and the reason I dedicated a chapter in the book to Recon and G is a lot of the people that I train, they don't go and really use recon ng because they're intimidated by that terminal. They're they're intimidated by the command line where Maltigo has that nice GUI interface. So I'm I'm hoping with what I talked about in the book and giving the examples and letting people walk through and actually see how it works that people will kind of buy into recon ng and start to use that more because there are some great people that are writing really cool things for recon ng and I, I think we need to acknowledge that that could be something much bigger than it's than how it's being used now. I couldn't agree more. And another tool along the same vein would be Datasploit. You know, um, I was doing uh, an OSINT engagement in a prior position, and uh, it was as part of a pen test. And I actually found out that the company had data on WikiLeaks just from using Datasploit and the specific um, uh, module for WikiLeaks. And I was like, hey, are you aware that you have all this? They're like, no. That's something that from the scope that I was using it for, which would have been as part of a pen test and leading up to a social engineering engagement, um, could have been catastrophic if someone stumbled across it and decided to make ill use of it. Yeah, I've, I've, I like Datasploit. The only reason we did not include Datasploit in the Buscador virtual machine was just sheer size. Datasploit actually added quite a bit of size to the VM. We were hitting some limits. So I think uh, what we ended up doing was just putting on some really quick instructions. If people do want to add Datasploit, here's a really easy way to do it. I, I got the chance to meet uh, Shubham, uh, the uh, creator, uh, last year. Actually, I gave away the copy of the book that you signed uh, at the Recon Village at DEFCON that he uh, organized. Awesome guy. But um, shifting in, so about Buscador, this is something uh, we've talked about in the past, but unfortunately, uh, due to technical difficulties, that podcast uh, uh, was not uh, publishable. Um, tell us a little bit more about uh, Buscador and um, have you integrated that uh, into the sixth edition? Yeah. So uh, to go back to the beginning, um, Buscador was the original idea came from David Westcott and, and him and I knew each other through OSINT circles. So David reached out to me and he said um, he knew that I was teaching how to make bootable USB drives like bootable Ubuntu Linux drives to use for OSINT to keep a clean machine. And the, the whole idea of those was not so much for OSINT capability. It was just more about security. And he had asked me if I'd ever considered making an OSINT virtual machine. And I told him yes, but my skill set, I didn't trust it enough to make 
to do it right. You know, I didn't trust myself that I would be able to find the right repositories and take out the ones we don't want. And, uh, I, you know, I didn't want to be responsible for including any dependencies that shouldn't have been in there. And I didn't trust myself on the security side. And, and I'm very cautious of that. And I don't want to promote a product that, it, that I believe could be, have a vulnerability. So, um, I told him, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely interested and I'd love to help with it, but you know, you would have to really do the heavy lifting on the Linux side. Uh, I, I understand Linux. I use Linux full time now every day, but I don't, I don't make VMs and export VMs and, and stand by them. So uh, basically he was willing to say, you tell me what goes in it and I'll make it happen. So that's kind of what we did. And he, of course, he had his own tools that he liked that I just happened not to use. So that came out. Um, it's a free virtual machine. And, you know, for me, the basic idea of Buscador is not that it is this new thing that no one's ever done. Everyone's used a virtual machine. Anyone can make one. And there are tons of them out there. There's tons of custom virtual machines. So it wasn't that we were trying to recreate that. For me, the big deal was uh, I truly believe in using Linux during OSINT investigations. I, I think it's it's appropriate. It's responsible. People should be using open source software. And also they, you don't want to be using that Windows XP machine to go after bad guy. So for me, the way that we wanted to be different is a lot of the people I was training, their their current government employees, they are not well-versed in Linux. They do not understand the terminal window that well. And that's not their fault. That's just, it's not their world. It might be our world, but it's not their world. So therefore they weren't using all these cool scripts. Like they weren't using various Python scripts to go get the good stuff. So what I talked to David about is let's make it easy. Let's let's make terminal commands point and click. And it's not that we made new gooey wrappers for anything. We just basically, he took the commands that I use that I would usually make batch files and windows to do, and he made them work in Linux. So my example of that is, if we have a, a Python script that does, well, let's talk about YouTube DL. So YouTube hyphen DL, great, amazing program. You can do so much with it. But if you don't know how to launch it and run the proper switches, you're not going to get anything back. So we just made a nice uh, a window for it. You give me the URL of that YouTube or you know whatever Vimeo channel that you want to download, put it in this box after we prompt you, and we will write the correct script out. We will go get the data for you so that the end user does not need to know anything about Linux commands. And that was the whole concept of this was give them the tools they should be using, but they just maybe don't have the skill set to understand completely. Uh, And is that dangerous? Maybe, but I'd much rather people be using these great Linux-based tools versus avoiding them because there's there's no web interface for them. Does that make sense? Makes total sense because I'm I'm kind of um, learning my way around the technical piece of it. So it, you know, it's very helpful to have things like that to to give us you know an introduction into it without making it completely overwhelming. Absolutely, and you know, a lot of people they're just terrified of Linux uh, for whatever reason. It's uh, for the most part, you know, just like you said with Recon NG, it's it's the terminal and. That that can be intimidating, but you know, once once you get your rhythm, it's it's actually, in my opinion, easier. Even in Windows, if I can if I can script it or do it from the command line, I, I prefer that way uh, almost every time. Well, and we're hearing from a lot of users that they are starting to use Buscador, which first of all makes them much more secure and, and much more safer on the internet by using a Linux machine, even if it's a VM on top of their Windows machine. But I'm having more and more people now say, all right, so I'm using Buscador and I've been playing with this and now I'm getting a bit more comfortable with the command line and now I'm using this tool. And it, it, I'm, it's really opening up a world to them that they were intimidated by. And I, I hope that becomes the norm because I, I would never conduct an OSINT investigation on my root host operating system. That's just out of my mindset completely. It's always going to be a virtual machine that's clean that will never be used again because I think it, we need to be much more cleaner about how we do things. And I think that even if people even if people don't really go all the way with Linux and they're using the VM just to use it, well, at least they're being safer and now they're not contaminating their investigation with other investigations. That was another really big point I try to make in my training is 
you've got these virtual machines, you've, you've got the ability to export these and create as many as you want. Why would you ever do two completely isolated investigations on the same virtual machine? Let's get rid of that contamination and make your courtroom testimony cleaner. Let's make your reports cleaner. And basically, you're going to be able to justify that you are the expert in this and you're making sure that you're doing things right. I couldn't agree more. And that that kind of leads me to a, a question that uh, I've been pondering quite a bit as of late. And when, when you're collecting OSINT, whether it be as part of a pen test, uh, whether it be part of an investigation, uh, just for jollies as part of a CTF or whatever, do you have an ethical requirement or implication to actually protect the data that you collect? Oh, I think absolutely you do. Um you know, one of the things I teach and one of the things we include in Buscador is encrypted containers to make sure that you don't become more of the problem. Um, you know, not that we want to go down this rabbit hole, but if you start getting into data leaks and maybe you're finding stolen information online, like credentials that have been dumped on Pastebin, you have a requirement to not be part of the problem and distribute it any further. So, uh, you know, personally, I, I try to make encrypted containers through Veracrypt for all my evidence and it gets stored in there and, until I'm ready to release it to whoever it gets released to. So I, I think you absolutely have a responsibility to not be part of that problem. So what else is new in version six? Version six uh, is, of the book, it's, it's, it's quite a bit bigger. Uh, I think it was 60 pages bigger than the fifth edition. Uh, so an entire chapter on Buscador and all the tools. Basically, um, we have version 1.2 of Buscador just came out and, you know, I had a, a, a kind of a preview, sneak preview of that version. So I was able to document what all was new. So I was able to take a chapter and really talk about every tool in Buscador, how we use it and maybe how, you know, you might get better use out of it versus just, Hey, here's a tool called this and it does this. I'd, I'd really try to show here's how you would use it in this situation and that situation. Um, you know, otherwise in the past, I think I had maybe one or two chapters on social networks, and now I've, I've broken all that out. So there's a Facebook chapter, a Twitter chapter, et cetera, because there's just so much to do. And you know, I focused a lot on deleted data, missing data, wiped out accounts. Um, you know, I, I, I talk a lot about what to do when your target wipes everything out. So with Twitter, there's tons of archived data that we can get access to. Uh, with Reddit, we've got Push Shift, which is a great API resource. I, I had a um, a target just the other day and did something pretty bad on Reddit and I got called to investigate it. And by the time I started investigating, not only had the user kind of disappeared, but he had replaced every post with uh, a character to just overwrite the post. But, you know, there's always archives. So, I, you know, using things like the push shift API, I was able to replicate all of his deleted posts and, and prove that that person did it. So one thing I really try to focus on is your suspect is going to make your investigation hard, but that doesn't mean you cannot complete the investigation. And there's just more now than ever, so many resources that if we don't know how to go get them, we're just not going to take advantage of them. When dealing with OSINT, this should go hand in hand, in my opinion. And that that's OPSEC, you know, especially like from your background, working uh, with a three letter uh, chasing legit criminals that could legitimately cause bodily harm to you. In a nutshell, what kind of steps do you take from the OPSEC perspective to kind of make sure that it's as hard as possible to perform attribution and say, yep, Michael Basil is the one that chased me? Yeah, it's extremely important. Um, and the first chapter of the book I do, it's, it's called Prepare Your Computer, and it talks about this, but you know, a lot of it's common sense. And, and you have a very advanced audience that you know they already know these things. But I'll I'll go through a couple of things. I mean, first, it's uh, virtual machines for everything, clean virtual machines for everything. Does that make it perfect? No. Could there be key loggers on my host? Yes. Highly unlikely with my situation, but okay, maybe that's possible. Um, but the biggest thing I, I really recommend to people is, I mean, obviously use a VPN, but don't just use a VPN. I, I see a lot of investigators that throw that VPN app on their computer and they think, okay, cool, I'm protected. And I, I don't really agree with that. I, it's a good layer. It's a good start. But what happens when your VPN connection drops? Um, I've had numerous criminals that I've went after that were using VPNs. But you know what? Almost every single one of them at some point 
either they lost the VPN connection, they didn't confirm it was on, they it, it was shut down or turned off. And that happens to investigators all the time. So I don't rely on a VPN on my operating system of my computer. I rely on a PFSense firewall that has a constant VPN with a absolute kill switch to where if I if my VPN, which is on a separate machine, if it loses connectivity, I just don't have internet at all. And, and that's not anything within the VPN app. That's actually within PFSense because... You know, VPN apps are often just wrappers for open source VPN software. And I, I have some great VPNs I use, but I, in my opinion, there's not one VPN app that's perfect. They all have flaws. So um, my biggest thing is run a VPN on a PFSense firewall, have an absolute kill switch that will kill your internet if it goes away. That way you're not relying on that that free app on your machine to protect you. I think that's just sloppy. So, you know, if, if you want to go further with it, I'm paranoid and I'm weird about this. So I have one VPN on my firewall that's always running and I have a different brand VPN on my computer. That way, I have a little bit of redundancy and I also have two companies. If one happens to be owned by the CIA, which yeah, that's not too out of reach to believe. Well, then I know that I have another one to back me up, maybe out of a different country. So I know I just went the whole paranoia route, but I want to ask you this. Would it not be a phenomenal idea if you were the head of the CIA to say, why don't we just put out some really popular VPN services and watch what everyone's doing? <laughs> and who's to say they aren't already, right? <laughs> I, I totally agree. Uh, and if it's not the CIA, I could see NSA doing it as well. So from, from that vein, any listeners that work for either agency, just make sure you provide proper attribution to uh, Michael Basil and the Advanced Persistent Security <laughs> Podcast. Any money you make, uh, you can send uh, 50% of it our way. Yeah, that'll happen. Well, let me know how that works. Oh, absolutely. So I've been toying around with um, an open source utility. Uh, I'm not sh- sure if you're familiar with it. Uh, I've been toying with it for OPSEC purposes because like you... Uh, I have a tinfoil fedora because I believe that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you have to be uh, without fashion. Um, <laughs> and uh, with that, uh, have you ever uh, heard of the Streisand effect? Not the actual effect, but the uh, open source software associated with it. Yeah, we've looked at it before. Um, and and I, I'm not a, an avid user, but I am familiar with the concept. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's just something I've I've kind of been playing with it a bit. Um you know, I'm not doing any high-end investigations now that I've kind of transitioned away from my previous role where I was consulting for companies, doing pen tests from time to time, uh, social engineering and what have you. Uh, now I'm an internal um, security architect. So, you know, my my times of doing those investigations are pretty much over, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I want everything hanging out there, you know, and like you, I use two different um, paid VPN clients, uh, but I don't use the PFSense, but I do route uh, through uh, a cloud provider using uh, Streisand. Not doing the investigations, I'm not really using VMs that much right now. Um, So something that uh, I I saw come across uh, Twitter yesterday, I I know you're trying to um, get people with certain operating systems on your show um, the complete privacy security podcast um, for for those of you listening that's not familiar. Um, so with things like tails and cubes, would you recommend using those to some degree in OSINT investigations? Yeah, I I use Cubes OS as my full time daily driver operating system. It is it's on my metal. That's how uh, I do everything, and then I use uh, obviously virtual machines on top of that. I do not use tails much, only because the stuff I'm usually looking at, it's usually just too difficult. So if I'm using tails and I'm on the, and if I'm on tour trying to even log into a Facebook account, I'm going to get locked out of my covert accounts. And now I'm, I've got a bigger problem and I, you know, I, they're made under fake names. So I'm not going to get Facebook to reactivate those. So I do not use tails ever as part of my OSINT strategy only because it causes more problems for me than it fixes. But I do use cubes and then I can have you know my my system set up, and I can have as many as I want. And there are some occasions where I do need a Windows machine for something. I have the ability, of course, to to boot up a, a Windows VM on top of Cubes. 
you know, your, your host machine is so vital to keep clean. You know, you don't, if you get the key logger or some kind of malware on your host machine, every one of your VMs can be screwed at that point. And that's why I like cubes. It has really true isolation between all of the machines that you're going to use. I can have a, a system running just for an, a specific investigation. And I know that it's not going to touch my other system running for some other investigation. So uh, for me, cubes all the way, we're actually planning a show to talk more about cubes and to talk more about uh, how we use it, how we isolate, how options for setting it up. Not that it's difficult, but cubes has a bit more of a learning curve than your average, say, Ubuntu installation. There is a little bit more there. And and I, I truly believe that if you want to go down that paranoia path, you need the isolation and separation from all the systems that you're using. So, um, the only time I use tails is more for the the offense stuff. If, if I'm doing something that I really need to be clean on this and I can't get caught, and I don't mean that in a, a criminal or a legal way, but it, you know, if I'm doing something on behalf of a client to their own stuff with consent, I need to make sure I don't get caught. So tails for me is more of the, I have that in my back pocket if I really need it. Otherwise, you know, I, I prefer the good VPN so I don't stick out too much as a, maybe a bad actor. Cannot agree more. Within the field of the paranoia, if you will, um, I know you're a heavy advocate of people uh, basically doing mutual OSINT against each other, more more or less for the the purpose of, hey, I want to see what's out there about me. Uh, if you'll go searching about me, I'll go searching about you. Uh, can you tell us some more about that? Yeah, that was actually something brought up on my web forum um, by another user. I didn't, I didn't come up with this, but, uh, one of my hardcore web forum users, he had cleaned up his own stuff. He had basically done all the opt outs and had his home address removed from the internet. And he was looking for someone to maybe kind of test like, Hey, see how I did. And, and it started by that. And more and more people were interested. And he actually runs a, a, a sticky post where if you want someone to dox you in a way, but, you know, privately, not, not put it online on pastebin, but if you want someone to tell you where you're vulnerable online and maybe where you need more work, he matches people up and, you know, you, you have to make that decision of how much to share at least once a year. I do it as well, just to make sure I'm not exposed. And usually I, I reach out to one of the guys I know on the forum and say, all right, let's, let's pair up again. Let me creep on you. You go creep on me and, and show me where I could do things better. And every time I do that, even though I think I'm Mr. Clean, he always finds something I didn't know was out there. So um, I, I highly recommend it. The web forum, it's com- you know completely a, a free forum. It's at inteltechniques.com. Thousands of people are on it. And we're we're a very kind community. We welcome new people, and you know it's the it's offense and defense. It's the OSINT side and the privacy side. And if you're doing OSINT, you've got to have some privacy protocols in place because it's going to come out one day that you're the person who found the damaging evidence evidence against bad guy. What happens when the media shows up at your front door? We should we should be prepared for that now. To echo your sentiment about how welcoming the OSINT community is. Uh, you know, in this day and age, we're hearing all the time, the hacker community, they're so vile. Um, and, and, you know, we do see the standard trolling and what have you and, and people who are very controversial, but I will say that I personally don't see, I haven't experienced a whole lot of that, but, you know, also being uh, a heterosexual white male, I'm not subjected to certain things, but uh, politics and all that fun stuff aside, I will say that the subset of the hacker community that includes the OSINT and social engineering communities, they will bend over backwards to help you if you have a question. If you if you come to you know Michael's forum or something like the Open OSINT Slack channel uh, with a legit question, people will bend over backwards to help you as long as you're genuine and you know not misusing it and abusing. Yeah, I've seen the same thing. And what I really enjoy on my forum is. About half the usernames are just randomly generated tokens almost from like KeyPass or something because everyone's so private. So you don't even know who anyone is. You don't know if, you know, what gender, you don't know what they do, but you know that they have an interest in OSINT and it makes for some good conversation. So I always do warn people that come to the forum, you do have to create a free account to log in. And that's only to keep Google from indexing my forum. You don't have a clue who is in there. I don't know who these people are. I don't know what they're doing. So don't post anything sensitive. Every once in a while, we have 
someone with good intent, maybe posting case information that we have to go in and, and delete or redact or something, or saying, hey, I got this phone number. Can anyone look it up for me? We, we don't want that kind of stuff. We're all about techniques and methodology, not hey, give us your bad guy's name and we'll do the research for you. So we're, we're not a doxing community. And, and that's the same way with the, the Slack forum too. I, I, the Slack forum, or the, not forum, the, the Slack page, um, the Slack channel, I'm on it daily, usually just kind of lurking around. But uh, again, great minds there as well if you're looking for more information about how to do this stuff. So for somebody who would be relatively new to it, um, going to like your your webpage, would you suggest that maybe they lurk on um, the message board or just start by reading the blogs or uh, where, where would you point somebody to if they were getting fresh into this and came across your, your webpage? I tell people just jump in and go to the tools and start stalking people. I mean, that sounds bad. I tell people to go to my page, go to the tools section. There are tons of search tools on the major social networks and the different video reverse searching and people look up sites and just go play with them. Uh, Maybe you start with your own information, start creeping on yourself, because that way, if you start searching yourself or the people in your circle, you will know if the results are appropriate or not. If you just jump in and start searching bad guy, you don't really know how accurate the data is that you're getting. Um, I, there's a blog that it goes back years of all the different posts I've made. The, the web form is amazing because now you have many people that are sharing their techniques and their methodology, which I, I credit them much more than I do my own blog because that's where the intelligence is, is within, the, within that forum. But then you've got the whole tool set, the Buscador set, all of that's free. Uh, I, I've made the promise from day one, every one of my online tools will be completely free and open. And it's for two reasons. One, they just should be. I mean, it's 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 not any kind of proprietary stuff. If I'm relying on Facebook to go find bad guy, then I don't have a right to charge to search Facebook. So the tools are always free, but also they're free and open because I have a lot of law enforcement that use them to go find bad guy. I want them to be able to document this is a free and open tool that the defense attorney, the judge, or anyone else that wants to could use. It's nothing private. It's nothing proprietary that the a fee is charged. It's open for anyone to use, and it only searches publicly available information. Therefore, I do not need a search warrant. I don't need a court order, etc. Do bad people use it? I'm sure they have. I, I think it's a vast minority that have. But I'm willing to take that for the tens of thousands of other people that use it all the time to go do good investigations. So, you know, I, personally, I learn by doing. I, I'm not usually patient enough to sit and sit through a video or, or, or anything like that. So I tell people just jump in. You can't break the tools. Just just go search and see what you find. I, I tend to echo that same sentiment. Um, one thing when I was starting to, uh, I use the term sharpen my talons of uh, searching. Uh, for OSINT on people, I would uh, reach out to uh, friends within various Facebook groups that um, <clears throat> I knew enough about that I could verify some of the information, but I, they weren't intimately close enough to me to where it was more like cheating, where I'd be like, oh yeah, that's that's their middle name, I forgot. Or call and say, hey mom, what's, so, what's so-and-so's middle initial? Something like that. Um, so I would just be like, hey, I'm willing to go searching on the internet and tell you what I can find about you. All I need is your name and your consent uh, and then any other information you're willing to provide, such as a phone number, an email address, or geographic location. And then from there, I would just go through, put it together, and then send it to them uh, in a secure manner and be like, hey, if you have any questions, I'm more than willing to talk about it. I'm including links to where I found everything. So if you want to opt out of anything, here's how you do it. And that defense is so important that, you know, people do get kind of creeped out when you when you find stuff that they didn't know you could find. But when you include here's how to fix it, that's I think that softens the blow a little bit. And I think that's an important part that some of the more uh, aggressive stalkers don't include. Absolutely. And, you know, back to the tool section of your website, um, if I want to terrify someone now, uh, I'll I will use uh, the Facebook live tool. Uh, where you go and get the Facebook live map and uh, start just pinpointing geographic locations. Uh, that usually works as a pretty good case study. And and uh, through my previous position, we did some work with some local high schools and uh, colleges and uh, the such. And you know, with that generation, uh, those that are just entering college and those in high school, and even worse, those who are younger, 
uh, social media is their bread and butter. They overshare everything. We know exactly what they eat, where they eat, who they hang out with, everything. And I think uh, using something like uh, the Facebook Live tool within your website, that's an excellent way to um, to kind of bring it home to them and explain, hey, you know, you're on Facebook Live publicly. Anyone can get your geographic yep. location. Yeah, I, and I also like doing that in my live training because it uh, it it proves that there are no smoke and mirrors to this. It's it's not a PowerPoint promising the world. It's someone online right now who thinks they're just being funny, but we can actually usually track them down, track down the people watching them, find out who they are, and um, you know, I, in my trainings for anyone who's ever been to one, you know that I, I don't use PowerPoint. I only do live stuff because I, I think that is required. I believe every OSINT presentation ever made is required to do things live because it proves that it can work. And if my, one of my favorite parts of my live training is if there's a problem and that, that sounds stupid, but like if something doesn't work, it gives us all a moment to find out why didn't that work and how do we fix it? Because as you guys know that, you know, the, the moment you learn something in technology, the next day it changes. So the methodology of how to do this stuff, I think is so much more important than knowing the link of where to go to get it. Absolutely. And with regards to the, uh, <clears throat> to the live map tool, uh, actually at the recon village, I was demonstrating it, uh, as part of, uh, a workshop I was doing and, uh, the biohacking village was on Facebook live, uh, doing some sort of demonstration and we we actually pulled it up and was able to say, hey, look, that's going through the Internet here at Caesar's Palace. Oh, here, let's comment to this. Oh, hi, biohacking village. Sincerely, the recon village. Um, and and I, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so I have two questions about that specific tool while it's on my mind. Uh, and these questions, I, I've had them for months. I've just kept forgetting to ask. Um, if someone's using a VPN say, you know, I'm using ExpressVPN and I'm dropping off in, say, Hong Kong. If I still go on Facebook Live publicly, do you know if it's going to show the Hong Kong uh, location, like where the VPN's dropping off? Uh, or would is that something that's completely circumvented? Yeah, so it depends on your environment. There's there's two main sides to this. The first is kind of the desktop laptop OS side, and then there's the mobile side. So if you are on your your laptop computer running the VPN out of Hong Kong, and on your Facebook profile you say that you live in Hong Kong, when you broadcast that live video, more than likely it's going to show from Hong Kong, and you can absolutely mask that. And I try to make that very clear in the training that you know these are all just leads. You don't kick down a door based on this information. Uh, sometimes they're very accurate, effective leads, but sometimes they're wrong. So if I wanted to be the jerk to throw you off, I could absolutely live stream from Facebook and Facebook would validate that I'm in Hong Kong when I'm not. Now, however, there's the mobile side and the mobile side varies based on your app configuration and your privacy settings. But when you are on Facebook app, the app itself on the phone, you grant certain permissions to Facebook that do not always get re controlled by a VPN. So if you have a VPN on your iPhone and you have that VPN set to Hong Kong, but you're also connected to a cellular tower because you didn't turn your 4G data off, Facebook can absolutely know where you really are at. And Facebook will usually put a higher preference on the location determined by your GPS or the cell carrier versus the location determined by your IP address or the Wi-Fi. So therefore, you could have a VPN on your phone and Facebook would still know where you're at. It just depends on your settings. So, you know, this is why I, I never recommend putting any kind of social media apps on any mobile device because you simply cannot control what they're going to tell home when they call in. So that's why everything, in my opinion, should be done on a virtual machine within a laptop environment, within a controlled VPN where you cannot accidentally leak those location settings. So uh, to answer your question directly, every, every situation is unique, but it could absolutely be falsified. So we can never rely 100% on that data. Awesome. And uh, you may recall the what they're calling the Facebook killer, that uh, the guy who is killing people on Facebook Live uh, do you know if your tool was used in locating him at all? I am legally not allowed to discuss such cases like that. Perfectly understandable. Uh, <laughs> I, when it was going on, I was like, hey, if that guy would go live, which is nasty, but I mean, 
I just learned how to do this. So, um, I can say there have been other cases that uh, I know that it has been. Um, so there's one public case out of Chicago where I believe the tool was even referenced in uh, a search warrant or within the the paperwork that went public to the media because I know the media reached out to me. Um, and of course, the media had it wrong. They reached out to me saying, how did you do that? And I had to tell them I had nothing to do with this. I had no comment, but I, have, I had nothing to do with this. If they use my tool, they use my tool. I, I didn't do the work. Go talk to the department. But uh we know that it has been used on a lot of criminal cases and people have been found, which is another reason why I, I don't put the tool behind a paywall. I don't put it behind a private area. I'd rather it just be public. And if there are a few bad apples that abuse it, so be it. Absolutely. Uh, Caroline, do you have anything? I'm just completely in awe, you know, that, um, you know, it, 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 something so seamless with, with those tools that, you know, there are just so many different instances where, they help on a case like that. Um, I was just curious, do you ever have like um, media specifically turning these things around to try and catch you in that? Or do you really think that that was just, um, you know, a misstep on their part? I have kind of a, I guess a, I don't want to say a hate, hate relationship with the media, but uh, I, <laughs> Like this here is the closest I come to doing, you know, any kind of interviews or something like that. But the media reaches out to us a lot. And usually it's, a, it's one of two requests. It's um, this big thing's going on. We want to find out what's really going on. Show us how you do that, which I don't respond to. The other is, um, you know, hey, you've got these tools and um, we want to talk to you about how they might be abused or how could journalists use these. And, and I'm, I'm open to journalists using my tools. That's great. Go find out the truth. I just don't really like to participate in that conversation. So, um, you know, we do get media requests a lot. That's usually something I just ignore. Um, you know, I, I had to do a couple of years ago when I was doing the first season of Mr. Robot, I was kind of halfway forced to do media for a while and it was okay, but I, I, I tend to not trust the main media outlets. So I try to avoid them. And the majority of the media that reaches out to me about OSINT or creeping on people is the the main three or four broadcasters that I, I just don't trust. I, I've had bad experiences with them. So I try to avoid them. Um, how was your experience with the Mr. Robot stuff? Was that, you know, something that you would readily, you know, work on again, even with, you know, another venue, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a wonderful first season with them. So I worked with Cora Adena, who was uh, Sam Esmail's assistant at the time. And the first season was an amazing experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I had a blast. Um, but, uh, you know, things change and time commitments and all that. And, and you know, the different people come in. So um, I don't work on the show anymore. Uh, I worked on the first few episodes of the second season and then uh, other people came in. So um, I, I loved it, though. It was great. It, it's not really it, it's hard for me because I'm a very private person. I don't put photos online. I don't do videos online. And after the season really took off, then all of a sudden there's a lot of attention and there's a lot of press requests and panels and uh, Reddit AMAs and all these things where people post photos and videos and, and I don't do any of that. So um, I loved it when it wasn't really a well-known thing. The first season of Mr. Robot, no one really knew much about it until it aired, which at that time we were done writing all of it. So uh, it was great. It's just I don't like public attention. I don't like media attention. I don't like the spotlight. So therefore, it didn't really fit really well with me after the show kind of took off. Um, it, it's not a knock to them at all. I, I give them all the credit in the world for everything they've done. Uh, again, wouldn't trade it for the world, but uh, it's just not really my scene. And don't forget, Elliot works for Dave Kennedy. That's right. <laughs> he works with Craig. Yeah. Right. So, um, so something that's been uh, trending on Twitter. Oh, I'm sorry. He is Dave Kennedy and he works for Craig. Um, got my wires crossed for a second. Um, so something that's been trending on Twitter as of late that I would like to get your cut on, uh, if possible, uh, Michael, and that is uh, Strava the uh, athletes social media platform that uh, um, apparently has uh, was not implemented securely and uh, released um, patterns of behavior of uh, personnel in sensitive government roles and 
uh, data on quasi or actual classified military installations. Yeah, so uh, Justin and I on our podcast, the, the Complete Privacy and Security podcast, we're actually getting ready to do, uh, kind of have that lead into our next episode. We're getting ready to record. Um, you know, for me, that is simply not surprising. And a lot of people are pointing this this finger at Strava. And I get it, but I, I also look at it from the mindset of what did you expect to happen? Uh, I don't use any of those gadgets or apps. And, and you know, we, you and I and many other people have talked about Internet of Things, security and vulnerabilities for years. So to me, I believe just as much blame should be put on the people who have a wireless device that calls home and tells their location at all times while they jog as the company who released that information, whether it's intentional or not intentional, it's still you're providing that data. So um, the situation sucks. It it sucks that it happened. And and I I feel for the people who were exposed. And and there are a lot of military people that work in special operations that are being exposed by name on some of these sites. And I hate that that happens. I hope it's a lesson that we don't have room for these things in our life. If you are the, the civilian that doesn't care about privacy and you live in that suburb and everyone knows who you are and you want to use these, these devices. Great. I have no problem with that at all. I don't judge you a bit, but when you work in these hostile environments, these security conscious environments where you need to be safe and you need to protect you and your family and your brothers and sisters, there is no room for this kind of behavior. And and I don't, I hope that doesn't sound too harsh, but um, I, I think that just as much, should be blamed on the person who registered for the account, used their real name, used their real username that they use on Twitter and said, yes, please track me as I run around this military base. I'm not throwing blame at them, but at the same time, we have to start looking at everything we use and everything that we do with these gadgets and think, okay, when this device gets hacked, when this device gets compromised and thrown online, will I have anything to worry about? And if the answer is yes, then just don't do it. And, you know, it, it, it sucks that the lesson has to be learned afterward, but maybe we'll be better for it later. I couldn't agree more. And <clears throat> the one thing I see coming out of this, um, I, I being a veteran myself and having worked for the Department of Defense, um, I, I keep thinking back to that annual security awareness training that was just the absolute uh, most fun experience um, of the entire year. And I say that in complete sarcasm, but I definitely foresee that uh, that training itself will probably get overhauled to uh, adjust to that. And I think that's a long time coming. You know, you mentioned the IOT angle of it. Um, I've not taken the training since uh, 2016, so I can't vouch for any changes between then and now, but that's something that was not really addressed. in in previous versions. It was basically don't uh, share passwords. uh, Don't share your account. Don't plug things in. If something gets stolen, report it. And that was about it. Well, I think that most, at least from my experience, most of the federal government computer like required training, by the time you get that package that's been professionally produced, the content's about three years old anyway. So, um, you know, that's to me a big problem in the government is the training that is created has to be so catered to a certain format and has to be, they're worried more about the production value of say the online training they're using versus the content itself. So I wouldn't be surprised if the training is still the same as it was in 2016. Uh, in my experience, you never get that cutting edge stuff. And a lot of that's just due, due to the bureaucracy of the government. Absolutely. Um, I saw a meme a while back. Um, it's mostly applicable to my time on a submarine, but it was like, join the Navy, use tomorrow's technology or use yesterday's technology tomorrow. Yeah, sounds right. And yeah, and it's like the things that we did using that technology, it's just amazing. Um, so, uh, Caroline, do you have any other questions? Well, I was going to ask, I know that um, you done some training with like the private and the public sector. Um, are you doing any kind of training or have you to have any people branch out to like school systems or talking to um, some, some younger subsets of groups and how to, you know, kind of help each other stay safe? 
Yeah, I've done a lot of presentations in the past. Um, you know, for for a couple of years, maybe a few years, I was traveling practically nonstop doing either keynotes or OSINT training or privacy training. And I've really drawn back on that quite a bit and I've trained other people. So I've got three instructors that are now doing all of the training, uh, all the OSINT and privacy training. Uh, they're all either current or former LE, military, et cetera. And so they're kind of taking over. So I've, I've kind of I guess, pass the torch a bit to them just because I have other projects that I want to work on. Um, I've done a lot of stuff with kids in the past and with like high schools talking about oversharing of data. Um, you know, I, I don't know how well it was, re- it was received because uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't have kids. So I have a hard time maybe connecting on their level. I, I'm more of the militant of you are going to do this now. And that doesn't go over so well. So, um, but but I've I've learned to find people that are more patient and that know how to talk to kids. So uh, one of my instructors that that has teenagers, he's uh, a little bit better at maybe conveying that message. So we're absolutely open to it. The big problem we have is we get requests constantly from schools wanting help with this. But it's always like, can you be here next week because of this thing that happened and this revenge porn that got posted, and we need to talk to our kids and. As you guys know, when you're when you're doing traveling and training, you're you know you plan many months ahead. So unfortunately, we have to turn down most of those just because we don't have the ability to turn it around that quickly. Um, and usually, what I try to do is find a local law enforcement division that does those kind of outreach and, and try to get them connected with with the right people. So, you know, I don't know what happens after that, but um, the requests are out there, and there's probably a probably a big business opportunity there. But we usually just can't get them done in time. Awesome. Um, so, um, do you have any parting, uh, pieces of, uh, wisdom or advice, especially for, uh, the up and coming OSINT, uh, enthusiasts? Uh, that's, that's hard. Um, well, I, I will say it's exciting to see so much interest in OSINT. Uh, when I got into it in maybe late nineties, early two thousands, first of all, I didn't know it was called OSINT at the time, but now I do. Um, there really wasn't a community there. There was just either you're doing your own thing or you're not. And, you know, anyone coming into OSINT now is so fortunate because there's so many people making great products and tools. And for the most part, they're all open and free there. I mean, every week we have a new Python script that automates something that helps us tremendously. So, um, you know, a lot of people ask, where do I start? I don't think it really matters. Just jump in and, you know, it'll be overwhelming at first and it'll seem like you're, you don't really have control of what you're doing. Just jump in and try everything and you'll find your own path of how you want to do it. Um, I think that there are going to be many, many more career opportunities in OSINT. It might not be called OSINT when you go look for that career opportunity, but I get people hitting me up nonstop asking if I know anyone looking for full-time jobs to creep on people. Not the words they choose. It's just the, what they're really looking for. And, um, you know, it, a lot of people a while back started getting into network security. And we were, I don't want to say we saturated that market, but boy, we had a lot of people go through training. They want to get into NetSec type stuff. And, and now it's kind of getting saturated. I think now we're approaching that time where there's much many more opportunities in OSINT than there were a few years ago. And, you know, right now there's, it's not like there's a four-year degree in OSINT. It, I think a lot of these companies from what I'm seeing are looking for experience and the ability to do it. Not so much the certificate that says you can do it because that really doesn't exist. So, um, you know, I guess my, my parting words would be there's huge opportunity out there. And if you really enjoy OSINT, those are the type of people I want to hire. I don't want to hire the person who is into it because it's it's something that could make some money. I want to hire them because they're addicted to finding those stupid loopholes and all these social networks to find information about people. I love that person. So jump in, man. I mean, there's so many opportunities. It's never been better for the free tools. Come and play in our playground. And understanding that you are a very private person, which may be the understatement of this entire show. Um, <clears throat> if anyone wants to reach out to you, how would you recommend them? Do uh, so? You know, the best is the website, inteltechniques.com. <laughs> I'm also at Intel Techniques on Twitter. The only social network I have is Twitter, and it's nothing more than my blog post. I don't I don't communicate on Twitter. I don't DM. I, I don't I don't do all those things because of my beliefs and lack of, so, of social networking. But 
I've finally given in and realized some promotion could be good, especially when you write books and sell online training. Maybe you should have a Twitter feed. So, um, and also put it out there as well. You know, David could not be here for this show. He's he's the he's the muscle behind Buscador. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at APT Notes. It's something that he's resurrecting. So go check him out there. Uh, again, he deserves a lot of the credit for Buscador. Uh, it would never have surfaced without him doing the heavy lifting. So I want to make sure that he gets the props for that. A lot of people associate Buscador with Intel techniques. Uh, don't forget him in that mix too. But um, yeah, come play on the on the website. Come to the forum, please communicate with us, tons of free tools. Uh, that's what I really want to push out there is the free stuff. If, if somebody wants to buy a book or an online training, don't get me wrong. I love that, but I would much rather you just come check out what we have to offer and come, come play with our community. Excellent. And, um, <clears throat> to, uh, echo, uh, about David, um, you know, w- one of the biggest things that I kick myself in the rear for is the fact that the episode that we recorded about a year ago um, just got corrupted and we couldn't publish it. And uh, I think that would have probably been the best episode of the podcast uh, to date, uh, just based on the, the sheer content, uh, the perspectives, uh, your perspective, as well as his. uh, And then the fact that it was, you know, Buscador in itself, uh, new, innovative, engaging, um, you know, I, I can't say enough, good things about uh, David or Buscador or even yourself, which, um, as you know, uh, your book is mentioned in almost every one of my social engineering and OSINT presentations. Um, so uh, at this time, I guess, go ahead and plug your books, uh, your training, whatever you'd like to plug as well. All right. Well, this may take a while then. Uh Again, IntelTechniques.com, the website. The book is called Open Source Intelligence Techniques. It's in the sixth edition. Uh, if you like free stuff, the forum, the privacy and security podcast. Uh, if you're into podcasts, which I would assume you are if you're listening to this, we do a weekly show on the paranoia tinfoil hat stuff that we do to stay out of systems and uh, out of databases and basically stay private. So uh, I'll warn you, it gets a little out there sometimes. We, we kind of jump into the weeds a little bit, but uh, we do it in a fun way. Uh, so if you're interested in improving your privacy, you know, that's really, that's what I focus on more now than OSINT is this whole, you know, there's so much public information out there. Let's, let's defend ourselves better so that we can be better at whatever offensive stuff that we do. Excellent. Uh, thank you. Um, out of curiosity, <clears throat> um, are you having another... Um, volume of the uh, complete uh, privacy and security desk reference. Yeah, it's actually done. So the, the first edition was 500 pages of digital privacy and security. So all of the encryption stuff, encrypted communications, all those good things. Volume two is physical. So basically it's all the physical security considerations. But uh, the first one third of volume two is actually all just updates to volume one. And then the second two thirds are the physical privacy and security, you know, everything from what Justin gets into, which is like the high secure locks and safes and all that, but also down to how to use land trust to buy your home under a name that's not yours, how you use LLCs to register that vehicle so that some road rage guy can't find out who you are and and come get you. So we get into we get into some pretty serious areas on that. When will it be released? I don't know. It's in editing right now and we're, we're, we're in a holding pattern, but the, the book is done. It will be out. I would say by spring, uh, we're just, we're, we're waiting for kind of the reviews to get done and, and make sure we're not going to get in trouble. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Caroline, how can people contact you? Um, you can get a hold of me. Um, I have my Twitter at CX Stevens. Um, and really that's all I've got right now since I'm in between gigs. <laughs> Excellent. And I can be found on Twitter at C underscore three P Joe. Uh, I have um, advanced persistent security.net. That's on Twitter at ADV persist sec. Um, I'll be speaking at several conferences throughout 2018. Um, RSA, uh, Atlantic Security Conference um, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Uh, then Hack New York City, Source Boston, uh, NOLACON, uh, as well as uh, Social Engineer Rhode Island, SERI. Uh, so I'm 
going to be out and about quite a bit. I plan on being in Vegas. So uh, if you're going to be out anywhere, uh, come and say hi. Uh, and uh, definitely, uh, you know, let's uh, stay in touch. Uh, Michael, do you have any speaking engagements? I don't do any public stuff. Uh, I, I don't even do Black Hat anymore. I th- That probably won't surprise you, the, but the privacy side. But uh, everything I do is pretty much private for uh, a specific organization or a specific event. And it's um, pretty secluded and off radar. So I have nothing to promote. Perfect. Um, well, thank you for joining us, Michael. It was definitely a distinct pleasure. I'm glad that we got to put this together. Um, I look forward to uh, receiving the book and reading it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, hopefully our paths will cross at uh, some point again. Yeah. Thanks to both of you. I, I appreciate the uh, the chance to come back on and, and, and correct the errors that we had from the last time. So uh, always a pleasure to come on podcasts that you listen to. So I thank you for that. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. And until next time, stay secure. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.